I'm a professor of communication at Bryant University out here in Rhode Island. I uh, am a New England boy and throughout my academic career traveled progressively west, ending up for 15 years at San Jose State and lived in Aptos and was a contributor to KUSB for several years while I lived out there. And then I had the opportunity to return to New England and chair a, a brand-new communication department at a small private school, so I took it. Um, I have like 100 articles, um, a couple really popular textbooks. One's an introductory mass communication book, and the other's like a senior-level uh, to use your word, hardcore theories book. Um, <laughs> and I'm interested in um, media, mass communication. I tend to focus on uh, large-scale or macro-level cultural, social issues. Um, obviously, that's forced me to pay some attention to the Internet <laughs> and what's going on in media, especially as they react to the new digital world. So that's me. And just give us your name again. Stanley Barron. Great. Thanks, Stanley. My name is Emerson Murray. And I'm Lyle Troxell. You're listening to Media Sound Off. So, Stanley, I, I took a, a couple of classes from you that was a long time ago uh, in the net world. In, I think it was roughly 1999 or 2000. And at that yeah. time, uh, I think aside from maybe talk radio, mass media was, was pretty one-sided and gatekeepers provided information and the rest of us just listened. Can you talk a little bit right. about how it's changed since 2000? Oh, I don't know if I can talk a little bit, but uh, if I got 45 minutes, I can get it done. No, one way to think about it is the traditional mass communication model, the one that I was raised on and the one that I taught for many years, is there was uh, a source, which tended to be a large, hierarchically structured media organization, and it distributed uh, mechanical uh, messages that were um, not alterable. I mean, once you sent out friends, if you were NBC, you sent it out. So it was many identical, unalterable uh, messages, uh, a single message, but in an unalterable, unalterable form mm -hmm. to an audience at best, you had vague notions about. Maybe you knew demographics like gender, maybe, you know, age, urban, rural. So, uh, you know, you had to sort of aim your message at, at really a broad set of demographics. And then the feedback was not only delayed, you had to wait until after your message was already sent out, I mean, even the, the fastest TV ratings were overnight, and that's still overnight. That's delayed, right. but they were also inferential, meaning the fact that, that you got a high rating doesn't mean that anybody liked you. Maybe there was nothing else on at the time. <laughs> so, so what ended up happening was the whole mass, com, mass communication process was infused with a conservatism, and, and I mean, I would argue a political conservatism, but it's sort of a corporate bent political conservatism, but that isn't really what I mean. What I mean is there weren't a lot of chances taken. There wasn't a lot of gambling. Mm 
right. you know, and if you think back and, and, you know, I'm just a couple months short of 60, but anyone in the 50, 60 year old range, you know, thinks about something like all in the family or laughing. I mean, truly groundbreaking television shows and, you know, they're tame compared right. to what, <laughs> what's going on now. Yeah. But, so, so there was the the whole system because it was so constrained, um, was um, really conservative. There was not a lot of gambling, a lot of risk taking. And at the other end, if you think about it, think about interpersonal communication, two friends talking. So you don't have a large hierarchical organization. You got basically one person. The message is it can vary, you can joke, you can change your, you know, your approach halfway through your message, you can, you can gamble, you know, you can tease, and you knew exactly who your audience was because you were looking at him or her. <laughs> right. so, so you knew, you know, if, and, and, and let's just use a, a dating situation, if you were a guy and you were approaching a, a, a girl to ask her for a date, and she was dressed sort of in sorority clothes, you would have, you would, you would have a, one particular pitch. But if you were a guy and you were approaching a girl for a date and she had, you know, sort of feminist gob on, whatever that is, you know, or, or, or uh, uh, she was goth, uh, you would have a much different approach because you would know exactly what the demographic was. And the feedback was instant right. and quite non-inferential you know you would look in her eyes she would say <laughs> yes she would say no yeah right so what's happened with the internet in 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 the digitization of media which basically means the personalization of media is media now aren't mass communication anymore they're actually much closer to interpersonal communication anymore wow. and so if you have if you think about it and let's go back to the idea of uh, old media being large, hierarchically structured organizations. You know, think about what's involved to put out an episode of, um, oh, My Name is Earl. There's the network, all the writers, all the senses, all the advertisers, the lighting people, the actors. I mean, there are really uh, maybe even five, 7,000 people involved in structuring that. But now your website or your podcast or your uh, um, e-newsletter or your listserv, whatever you want it to be, sits right next door on the Internet or now in the mass media system, right next door to NBC or the New York Times. Yeah. Your message is, I mean, you, you, you get real-time feedback because people are online. They write, you know, you put something out. And they zap you back and go, that's stupid, or, hey, that's a great idea, or they, they link you to something else, and now your message is infinitely alterable and flexible because it can get bigger and smaller as people contribute and the like. And your audience it potentially is bigger than NBC's audience or the New York Times audience. Right. Um, it, it's conceivably the entire world. So you maybe don't know as much about their demographics. I mean, you know, we know who Scrubs appeals to. We know who the New York Times appeals to or the Nation magazine. But the fact of the matter is, because your cost of production and distribution is virtually nothing, 
it doesn't matter if you get four people or if you get 40 million people. Right. So what's ended up happening is as, as the media have become more like interpersonal as opposed to mass communication, we see much more experimentation, much more risk-taking. We see much more, um, uh, when I say this in the very best sense, much more noise mm-hmm. in the cultural and social conversation. Stanley, yeah, I was going to, I want to ask you, uh, in, early, in the early 60s, McLaughlin predicted that electronic media would um, kind of create, I think what he called like a global village. And right. at the time, people didn't maybe even understand it was a very new idea, but now it's such a clear mapping to what the Internet is. Do you think we have arrived or are still on our way to this global village? No, listen, uh, we were actually there when McLuhan said it. The problem was is, and I don't want to get too, you know, like professor-like, but <laughs> the problem was when you think about media, mass communication, the dominant thinking, you've got to remember in the 50s and early 60s, you know, America was the great colossus. We had made the world safe for democracy. Our technology and our science made the world a wonderful place. You know, um, we were moving to the suburbs. We had all kinds of consumer stuff available to us now. You know, the television was wonderful. We had Johnny Carson and Jack Benny, and the economy was humming. You know, if you were black or female or brown or poor, that really didn't matter because that wasn't what was America was about because the, the guys on top always write the history and all the social as well as political history. But so America's really humming, everything's cool, and of course media must be at the very worst benign, but more than likely a contributor to this. Mm-hmm. And this is what social science was saying, this is what the conventional wisdom was. So McLuhan comes along and says, you know, there really is absolutely profound change going on here. So McLuhan starts writing at the time of the Vietnam War and Richard Nixon, um, um, you know, comedians like Jose Jimenez, which was actually a white guy who they believe he was Mexican, <laughs> know. You know, uh, Bill Cosby. So now we, get, we, get, we start to get other voices, you know, black voices, feminist voices, uh, uh, of course, hippies, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And McLuhan, who's now an English professor, tries to talk about this in big, giant, sort of global terms. So what ends up happening is the English professors hate him because he's talking about TV and movies, and, and mm-hmm. you know, that's not highbrow. And the social scientists hate him because they're all saying, oh, media are wonderful, a big contributor to the great American rebirth. And McLuhan's saying, you know, we really need to look at the changes that are coming down the pipe. So he ends up, you know, he would, he, people made fun of him. He was the, uh, the high priestess of pop, of pop and that nut professor from Canada. And so his ideas, like hot and cool media, but the one you mentioned, the global village, sort of end up getting dismissed. Oh, oh yeah, like, oh, we're all one now. But that isn't really what he was saying. In fact, there's, uh, if, if any listener wants to Google it, or tr- uh, otherwise track it down, McLuhan gave an interview to Playboy in which he said, 
nobody's really listening to me. He said, he said, think about it. How much more rancor is there around a single family's dining room table or in small town, small village politics? He said, I never meant to say that, oh, you know, we are the world. Everyone's groovy now. What I really meant to say was, as media become more democratized, we all become more involved in one another's experiences. And we either, in, 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 as the conversation gets more intertwined, the potential for good is certainly there. But you cannot discount the potential for profound cultural change in the other direction. So was he talking about a global village in the sense that um, it's easy to communicate it's, or everybody has the same voice? But, I mean, doesn't it map still pretty well to this idea that everyone's connected into a, uh, a discussion that is global? No, absolutely. That's exactly what he was saying. But what ended up happening is he got spun as oh, he's an idealist, he's a technological determinist, he's a utopian, you know, meaning McLuhan never said, because we're all now communicating with one another, we're all going to get along. But right. those who tried to, who, to marginalize him spun him that way. And then what happened, and this is a remarkable thing, but it's been the case ever since there's been mass communication, advertisers and marketers as opposed to politicians and educators, said, this guy really knows what he's talking about. So McLuhan says, you know what? I'm not going to fight the academics anymore. They want to make fun of me. They want to mischaracterize what I'm talking about. Fine. And he ended, up, he ended up going to work for advertisers. He was the media advisor to the Pope. You know, I mean, he ended up going to work for, for big people who recognized the change was coming. And then, as I, I mentioned to Emerson in an earlier conversation, one of the uh, really interesting things about McLuhan is he was on the cover of Time, like in you know 1971 or 1972 or something like that. You know, the high priest of popular <laughs> culture. And then he was he was on the cover of Wired magazine, but 45 years later, as the high priest of the internet. Right. And and if you look at the masthead of uh, Wired magazine, where they list you know the editor and all of that stuff, down the second last line or so, it'll say patron saint, and it says Marshall McLuhan. Do you think it's a good title for him? <laughs> I you know, if you, I bet you can. Well, have you ever read a Marshall McLuhan book? I yeah. picked one up and got lost into something that it seemed like a, um, a stoned rant. <laughs> no, he, he's absolutely unreadable. Completely. You and I totally talked about this years ago. Yeah, the first two books you can sort of read, and after that it's just gone. Okay, but what he was absolutely perfect at, you know, you, know, you see the word around all the time now that we're in the Internet age, the meme, you know, the M-E-M-E, -E, yeah, yeah. the meme. Sort of the, the kernel of the idea and, and that gets carried on and added on and the like. So he was, I mean, I don't know if he's, he certainly didn't invent the word, but he was the first guy to popularize it in that sense. And he was brilliant at creating memes like the Global Village, Hot and Cool Media, 
the medium is the message or the massage, as he would sometimes say. <laughs> so, you know, do I think he should be the patron saint of the Internet? Uh, he certainly should be the patron saint of the way we now talk about the Internet. But equally, on the other side, and I don't think that the folks at Wired considered this, the, you know, you know, Arpanet and Paul Barron, the guys who, quote, invented the Internet, unquote, yeah, yeah, you know, sure. the techn- technical side, which apparently most of your listeners do understand, mm-hmm. the, 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 the philosophy about linking hundreds in the beginning, then thousands, then literally billions in, you know, of, of computers, actually came from a guy named... Uh, uh, I'll think of it, uh, came from a guy who was a, a, a McLuhan um, acolyte. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, tr- I'll track it down while we chat. Okay. So sort of, you know, this whole idea about packets um, being spread out, shared over multiple computers, and everybody contributing their part to, to ultimately the, the construction of the message, that came from a guy who was a psychologist, in fact, and I will track it down while we chat, uh, uh, who was, as I said, uh, uh, a McLuhan guy. So in that, that sense, he probably is more the, the, uh, patron the patron saint, saint yeah. of the Internet. <laughs> Can you talk about information overload? With all this information out there, these, like you said, these billions of computers... And so much information yeah. floating around. Yeah. Well, can I, let me tie a couple things together. Okay, please. Lick Litter is the guy's name. Okay. And okay. Uh, your, guy, your people can look him up. Um, one of the things about democracy, and this is why we have the First Amendment and everything else, is um, everyone's supposed to have a voice. That's why we have the First Amendment. And, you know, through a couple centuries of Supreme Court decisions, some, some of the ideas that have uh, still remain or should have remained at the core of the First Amendment, uh, democracy survives through not only a multitude of tongues, but through a multitude of antagonistic tongues. Mm-hmm. And what ends up in, in the beginning, you know, when the founders... Uh, wrote the Constitution, I mean, uh, in the first ten amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, you know, really anybody could stand on the street corner or post a, a, a broadside on, on a, you know, on the side of a building, right. hence the mm-hmm. name. But, see, that really wasn't true. You, you had to be white, you had to be male, you had to be landed, but in the, sort of in the world that mattered to them, they still understood that you needed to have a lot of voices and those voices needed to be antagonistic. So time marches on, time marches on. We get mass communication and radio, television, movies, advertising, newspapers. And what ends up happening is we really get fewer and fewer voices even though now it appears that all of us are part of the conversation because we're all reading the newspaper and we're all watching TV. So democracy seems to become more, no pun intended, 
democratized, but actually what starts to happen is the number of voices starts to shrink, and even worse, they become less antagonistic because now they're all dependent upon the same government sources. They're all dependent upon, non, well, first of all, they're all dependent upon the same pool of advertisers. But even if you consider that a very, very large pool, all those advertisers really have the same goal, and that's making money. So not only does the number of voices start to dwindle, but the antagonism in, within those voices starts to to disappear because really they all have the same mindset and that is let's not kick anybody off let's sell our car let's right. sell our orange juice or whatever all right so now comes the internet what do you do what ends up happening is now we really do have much more voice meaning many more of us can enter the conversation. We have much more antagonism because we're not bound by the kind of, cons again, uh, uh, intellectual conservatism as opposed to political conservatism mm -hmm. that I mentioned earlier. But now, there's so much of it, what do you do? What the, uh, what yeah. the regular, what the old-fashioned media gave us was at least the framework. We kind of knew where the times was coming from. Yeah, we they sort of knew. directed the conversation. Yeah, Right, and we also knew where they stood. We knew that yeah. they had a certain set of values. We right. knew that CBS had a certain commitment to doing news. We knew that the BBC had a certain understanding of how the world should be presented. So we had a, a, a manageable amount of data, for lack of a better term, or information, and we had a framework that made it a little bit easier for either those who were very well or very much tuned in and even those who weren't so tuned in to interpret that. Mm -hmm. And things seemed to work, you know. So we would invade an occasional third world country <laughs> and, you know, but basically, you know, we all live in nice houses except the people we don't want to pay attention to. You know, things seem to go along. So everybody's cool. But now what the Internet does is not only gives us many, 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 many more voices, it starts to weaken the authority of the more traditional voices that we used to turn to because they kind of help us understand things. Mm -hmm. And not only do we increase in number, the central voices start to lose their authority, but now where do we go? Right. How do, who do we know among the new guys to trust? So we not only have information overload, it, which is bad enough, but we've also lost sort of the framework for you know what information to pay attention to and not pay attention to. Okay, so, I mean, so the world was up. Yeah, so let me so let me grab from that. So the old the old kind of media form was that you might know what the Times, New York Times, was doing, and you might go, "Yeah, I kind of agree with them," or at least you knew where they stood. And they acted as a gatekeeper and a collection and a way of of composing thoughts around a certain um, way of thinking. And then as you subscribe right. to reading that and you'd you'd understand it, you might choose a few different sources, but at least there was kind of genres of choice, and you had some framework for it. And now the gatekeeper, if you will, of the information 
is it doesn't exist. It's actually, I mean, I, I, Emerson and I were talking about this the other day. It seems like the new gatekeeper is the search engine. And that actually, the way the algorithms work, is actually a conglomeration of what the mass thinks the best site for that knowledge is, which is a very abstract way of gatekeeping. Do, do you think that that's a, the search engine's the new way to, to uh, produce a framework? Uh, that's actually a very good question, and one I had not anticipated, so i got to think about this a second. And I would like to say yes, and we all love the Internet, and we can all go now run around the fields and throw daisies. <laughs> Isn't it all wonderful? But, but if you really think about it, Google anything. I mean, you know, uh, Google yeah. uh, the bailout, and you know the first 500 sites that come up, or, uh, or not sites, the 500 pages, whatever you want to call them, that come up are going to come from the New York Times, MSNBC, Fox, Reuters, the BBC, you know, so it, we, I do think that there, people do have more of an ability to, act, through search engines, to access a much wider number of expressions, but they aren't necessarily yeah. antagonistic, and they still sort of come from that same framework. And in that framework... Yeah, that same handful. Yeah, yeah. it's still... It, well, uh, so, I hate to contradict you, you but do. I just did a test on I'm that. Sorry? To see, see what it was. I just did a test on the bailout at a Google yeah. search, and the first ones we got, we got um, National Review... We got, um, of course, it, of course, the Washington Post is up there high. Um, AFP, Fox Business, um, off the off the cuff. Uh, I think it's worse than what you said. Ba Battlemedia.com. I don't know. Radar Online. Some of these things I've never really heard of before. And I guess that's kind of the issue: is that where's the framework? You don't know these people. You don't know where they come from. You don't. I have, and Forbes is up there, so that's the one I recognize. Well, NPR is up there. I'm willing to anyway. bet yeah, yeah, I think. Radar is probably owned by Reuters or somebody. Uh, National Review <laughs> is probably owned by the American Nazi Party, although they will never admit that. Uh, okay, so, so no, I, listen, no, I, I, I would never overstate and say it's still the same four voices, but... Well, right, right. That that is not that's not as broad an array of opinion as sort of the the uh, those in lust with the internet uh, would want to make the case for. All right, yeah. but but here's the thing: what what is different is if you do want to dig in a bit deeper. Now you do have if you are one of the connected people. I mean, not like that's a club or anything. If you are connected to a particular issue, now you can dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And the other thing is, right. so I will, so I'll grant you this part of your argument. Maybe those first 20 might be more or less common sites or, 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 or let's for lack of a better term, mainstream sites, but they will link to another bunch of voices which will link to yeah. another bunch of voices, which will link to another bunch of voices. So in that sense, maybe the, the initial... Do you remember when the big talk, I don't know, what was it, eight years ago, maybe ten years ago, the big talk, talk was about portals, 
Remember? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You guys too young. Um, no, no, yeah. The whole idea was, oh, here's the internet. Don't freak out. We're going to give you this doorway to help guide. And what ended up happening, and probably because of Google and, 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 and aggressive or powerful search engines, people became their own portals. You know, yeah. I don't need to go to your place where you can direct me to consumer news and you can direct me to international news. I'll do that myself. So there was a case where users said, you know, we still want to impose a bit of our own framework on how we look at what's out there for us. Um, you know, maybe I'm being a bit too pessimistic, and maybe, again, it, you know, you got to understand, you're talking to a guy who is not 27. And, mm -hmm. and, and my approach to the Internet, I'm sure, is different than I can tell you. It's different than my own teenage kids. Um, you know, so a, a younger yeah. person might, and I don't mean this in any condescending or even joking way, you know, a younger person who grew up on finding information online might have a completely different perspective than someone like me who right. finds the internet as what I always had, but so much cooler. Yeah. We were thinking about the library, you know, why is it that there are many more books than I could ever read in a lifetime in this library, but I'm not confused. I don't feel overwhelmed. I don't feel inundated with information, but why do I feel that way with the internet? And I think, I think you, you sort of hit on something that the younger generations are going to be just at, as at home online as we are in a library, perhaps. Right, right. But you know what I think another part of the problem is? And that is, when you walk into a library, the, the information that is available to you is kind of within your tactile experience. You smell the books. You see the books. But when you, when you even you pull that first page of, of Google up on whatever you searched for, the bailout, you know you're looking at one page, but you know there are... 30 billion more pages that are represented by those pages. And you know that, and again, I, I, it's psychological, you know that if you don't go past those first pages, you aren't taking advantage of the Internet. I guess what I'm saying is the whole idea of books, walking into the library, is that tactile. I can hold this knowledge in my hand. I can go deep into this that I have in front of me. When, when you right. look at the Internet, it's, my God, you know, <laughs> what's behind this? You know, when you're on right. the first floor of the library, you're not wondering what's on the third floor, but when you're on the right. first 20 hits on Google, you know that there are, and it doesn't matter what I look at, for fun, ball school, baseball scores or whatever, you know, I always look at, uh, your search has produced so many hits, you know, and, right. and you see it. It's 362,551,000 hits on um, uh, the World Series. And, you know, you know that's the, a bit daunting. The bailout, the bailout gave us about 13,500,000 pages. Yeah. <laughs> it's overwhelming. You're listening to Media Sound Off at mediasoundoff.com. I'm Lyle Troxell. And my name is Emerson Murray. We're talking with Professor Stanley Barron today. So... 
let me let me ask you o- online. Um, w- let me ask you wh- how teaching has changed for you in in your in your years of teaching mass communications. Yeah, especially now that everybody is a creator and and every it's so easy. You know, you have a this classroom that's basically filled with people that are really media literate and, and everyone. Uh, they all have a voice now. No, I, I, well, I have a bunch of answers. It depends <laughs> on what level. But primarily, my school, uh, you, when you enroll, you get a laptop. At the, and at the beginning of your junior year, you give them back your old one, and they give you a new one. So in, in, I, in, in my campus, Bryant University, after Rensselaer Polytech, is the second most wired campus in America. So mm-hmm. it's in it's in our faces all the time. So for one thing, I ban laptops from my classes because the, you know they they give me the line while I'm just taking notes or I'm looking up what you know like I teach a even though I'm a math comm teacher I teach jazz appreciation you know and they'll they'll tell me oh you mentioned Charlie Parker well I'm I Google Charlie Parker or I looked up. You know, Charlie Parker's uh, collaboration with uh, uh, Duke Ellington or whatever. But that's not true. They're watching ball scores because you can tell, <laughs> you know, when, when two-thirds of your class starts high-fiving each other and, you know, what you basically said was Billy Holiday died in 1957 and at that precise moment kids are high-fiving, you know, there aren't that many racists in the world of people who hate jazz. So you know something else is going on. So... I have banned the machines from the room because, and again, maybe young people can multitask, but I still stand in front of the classroom and I do want to provide the framework. And again, a younger teacher and younger professor <clears throat> might make a different argument. But, and I don't know which of you just used the word media literacy. That is the, really the big difference. When I started teaching, I had to convince my classes to take this stuff seriously, that it really mattered in their lives, that what they did for careers, who they thought was attractive, where they chose to live, who they voted for, all of that stuff was a function of their interaction with the larger environment because of mass communication. But Mm -hmm. these contemporary kids, because they are producers, creators, distributors, as well as you don't even want to use the word audience members anymore. They're users. You know, they're, they're content. Well, they're media users. I don't even have to do that anymore. So I already have a, a my kids, not just mine, college students in general around America, are, are truly media literate because they, again, they don't sit at the end of the mass communication process. They are... It's beginning, it's middle, and it's end. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's made teaching actually a lot easier and a lot more fun. And one of the things that happens, my kids, when it comes to the Internet, my students, way hipper than I am. So, you know, just the other day, a student says to me, you need to look at uh, livingroomcandidate.org. Every major party uh, television ad from every presidential election since 1952 
online, public domain, absolutely free. Wow. Don't you don't you think I wish I had this twenty years ago when I was trying <laughs> yeah. to keep media effects? There's another one, and I this one I don't really remember the name, but you can Google free documentaries. There's mm-hmm. a website. Oh yeah. You know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's amazing. Not, like 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 not four minute uh, drunk driving <laughs> documentaries, <laughs> full length documentaries. Yeah, you know, oh, fog yeah. of war, Fahrenheit, nine one one. You know, and and they basically say, why don't you kick in a few bucks if you want. Uh, to help keep this site up, but you know, in again, I don't know how old you guys are, but when I began, if I wanted to show anything in class, you know, the the cigarette smoking old AV guy would come down and he'd bring <laughs> the film cans and he'd have to set up and the bulb would burn out in the projector and you know, and now, I mean, again, my campus and I imagine most campuses at least. Private campuses at the state universities are doing all that well around America. Um, right. I mean, every classroom, every when I was at San Jose State, they used to brag, "Oh, that's the smart classroom." Every single classroom <laughs> on my campus. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> every classroom in my my on my campus is smart. Every single one. Everyone's a, a, a Wi-Fi hotspot. Again, that's why I can't let them bring their machines to class. But, you know, instead of a lectern, there's a console. And, mm-hmm. and you know, whatever comes up on my screen, I can project. I can, I can look at the screen and not project. I mean, I have basically complete control. So it's made teaching um, much more fun, much more interactive, um, much easier. And the other thing it's done, and I actually – I. I wanted to talk about this, so I was going to find a way to work this in. So this work is it how in, I'm baby. Go ahead. If, if it doesn't quite work, work it in. Work with me. Work with me to make it work. Okay. You guys know. You know who Josh Wolf is? Oh my God! That was, it's on our list of questions. Yes. Ah. Work it in, my friend. Why don't we ask the question, Em? Go ahead. Hang oh, on. What's our question? Okay, okay my question, question, Professor Barron, uh, is. Um, how do you feel about freedom of the press for anybody who blogs or anybody who uh, participates, participates online, in sure. this in this new media? Well, no. If you need, I actually blew it when you asked okay. me. <laughs> no, when you said to me, "Is Marshall McLuhan is, is it right to call him the patron saint of the internet?" Yeah. What I should have said is, "Yeah, that's fine," but the patron saint of the kinds of questions that the Internet now forces us to confront is Josh Wolf. I mean, okay. he's that situation. And, and the way I was going to work it into teaching is mm-hmm. if I want to talk about First Amendment, I want to talk about police powers, I want to talk about corporate power, I want to talk about gatekeepers. I mean, there's not a single mass calm issue that, that I want my kids to really think about and debate and, and basically confront their own assumptions that I can't use Josh Wolf for. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and this is what's remarkable about teaching now, because there are things I don't have to say, um, oh, uh, Seymour Hirsch, 
had the photos of, uh, of me lie, and he had to convince the magazines to run them. You know, what would you have done if the magazine told you? No, like I, my kids don't have to put themselves in the shoes of somebody that they might be 18 years into their careers if they happen to go there. I can put my kids, my students, in the shoes of people exactly like them doing exactly what they're doing right now today. Okay, so, so who, who's, who's Josh Wolf? <laughs> I was getting there. Okay. So, A.J. Okay. <laughs> Liebling, who used to write for The New Yorker, had a famous saying, and it was... Uh, the only people who have freedom of the press is those who own them. And that is the truth. You know, so the, the corollary to that is you don't get into an argument with someone who buys zinc by the barrel full. You know, we never, tr we never truly had... <laughs> we never truly had freedom of the press. You know, we had freedom to read or not read what others, you know put out, printed for us, or distributed over the airwaves for us. But Joshua is a blogger. He's a video blogger. In uh, 2006, he covered uh, an anti-corporate rally in um, San Francisco, and uh, he took video of it. The rally turned violent. Some police cars got turned over or something like that. And the police you know, wanted to arrest the protesters. So they, they knew that uh, this kid, Josh Wolf, you know, what's he, 20-something? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, had video. So anyway, what ends up happening is he goes to jail, just like the more well-known Judith Miller, um, who was the poster girl for bad journalism, because of, you know, her involvement in the whole Scooter Libby Gallery oh, claim yeah, outing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but she worked for the Times. So everyone understood, you know, why she was not uh, responding to the government's demands that she provide her notes. But here's Josh Wolf, who is a, quote, video blogger or blogger, unquote, who said, listen, I'm a journalist as much as anybody else. And all of the, I shouldn't say all, but the vast majority of the important journalism organizations in America, American Society of Journalists, um, uh, the Newman uh, Center for Freedom of the Press, all of those, the Radio Television News Directors Association, all of those mainstream journalistic organizations filed uh, Friends of the Court briefs on behalf of Josh Wolf. Mm -hmm. Now, their, their intent, I'm sure, was to protect a reporter's right to, you know, maintain the, the, his, his or her own notes or his or her own confidentialities. But this was the first time they had to do it for somebody who was not a member of the so-called mainstream press. And eventually, the, the DA's office up there took so much heat that they eventually worked to deal with him where he had to, he testified about having been there or whatever he did, but didn't have to turn over any of his video or any of his notes. And it really was a, a victory. So now freedom of the press belongs to anyone who has a cell phone. 
Mm-hmm. So when I wow. make my so my kids go, yeah, that's great. Power to the people, right on. <laughs> and um, and I go, but you know, uh, Josh Wolf calls himself an anarchist. So now, now power to the people doesn't sound so good to a bunch of college kids, you know, who are accounting majors or marketing majors. Right. You know, they like the principle, and but they didn't like this guy's politics. Right. So now they go, oh, geez, I don't know, I don't know. You know, and then that gets us into the conversation about freedom of, of the First Amendment's not designed to protect speech you like, because speech you like doesn't need protection. <laughs> right. The First right. Amendment's designed to protect speech you don't like, because that's what does need protection. Do you so, think we're in a no, space I, now that, do you think we're in a space now that everyone that has a blog and anyone that's online, if you get a cell phone or whatever, just saying, look, I'm press means they are? I mean, is that, is that a universal right now of Americans? Uh, well, let me tell you, I actually have a, probably a longer answer to that than you like, because I have two guys on your lunch break. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, okay. Go Keep on. going. <laughs> um, um, there is circulating, and listeners can blog this, there is a bloggers code of ethics. Uh, yeah, I've, circulating I've read it. On, and, you know, what do you do with that? You know, <laughs> isn't part of what makes the Internet so wonderful and, well, isn't what makes it so wonderful and so much a, a true uh, example of freedom of speech and freedom of press is that there are antagonistic voices. Right. But this is when we go back to that question from earlier about framework. You knew that the guys at, guys and ladies, at NBC had a certain set of rules, but you don't know if a blogger has a certain set of rules. You get a guy, uh, someone like Matt Drudge, the Drudge Report, this guy's a hack, doesn't have a day of journalism training in the world, but he was able to do all of this, especially during Clinton, all of the stuff that the mainstream media wouldn't touch because they had standards. Right. But what it did was is it gave the mainstream media uh, entree into those issues. Because it's, look at, we're not saying this, but we're saying the drudge said this. So it's out there. <laughs> now we have right. to comment. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to say I don't know where I stand on it. I believe the more voices, the better. I believe that. Let it all hang out, and what shakes out shakes out. And at least yeah. there is, and at least there is true antagonism again in media. At, no, absolutely, and I think that that is a good thing. What has to happen is that someone like Josh Wolf, and I'll go back to him. Sure, people need to talk about him and what happened to him. You know, are there gradations? And I don't think the cops should bust anybody for their notes or their records. They're cops. That's their job to do it on their own, not have citizens do their jobs for them. Mm-hmm. But if people were aware of, okay, here's Josh Wolf, you know, he's been doing it this long, you know, here's, I can go, you know, you, you can go back and you can look at his archives and get a sense of who he is and what kind of, you know, what his approach has been to these issues. Um, you know, I trust people to be able to do that. Right. Again, I think the more voices and the more antagonistic, the better. But what the problem, however, is, and I'll go back to Drudge, 
is if you look at, and I did this some time ago, the 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 ten most uh, oh geez, who's the group that tracks um, websites and blogs? Oh, I can't remember. Someone can look it up. How about how about uh, uh, Newswire or Newsline? No, no. I'll, I'll, while we're chatting, I'll Technorati. I'll, uh, yes, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Technorati. Uh, All right, if go you on. if you look at them, they'll tell you there's 150 million blogs out there, whatever the number is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at their rankings, the top 20, you know, Andrew Sullivan from the Atlantic, uh, Dan Frumkin right. from the Washington right. Post. You know, so on the one hand, that's kind, of, that's kind of a bummer because now really a blog or a V-blog uh, isn't really the people's voice anymore. On the other hand, they lend legitimacy to the whole notion of blogging and you know, guys like Frumkin or uh, Huffington Post or even Andrew Sullivan, they're not unwilling to link uh, to folks who disagree with them. Right, and and it's very interesting that, you know, sure, it's the, the people that are really key in the high position of blogs that are really read have a lot of history in writing, which makes sense because they have a skill, right, and they, have, and they also have training for years at, at newspapers and such, but still – they are it's potentially it's their own voice and it's not the person that's buying the ink that is in control of what they say in that space and that's a real question that also leads credence to what they're saying so there's a so, give, there's a give and take there no absolutely right and what they have is they have a bit more stake in their own reputation because they still they want to be taken as seriously as as serious commentators but one of the things that's going on, especially in the newspaper business, you know, which is, of course, in trouble, yeah. not only in America, all over the world, uh, one of the things that's going on is most newspapers now let their reporters, in fact, order their reporters to blog because that allows them to sort of interact with the community. To it's, demonstrate and it's free press, with, yeah. Yeah, we're so 21st century. But... They have to let their reporters who are blogging be more bloggers than reporters. So now they lose control of their editorial voice. But they're still paying them. And, <laughs> well, they're correct. They're still paying them. Absolutely, they're still paying them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. now what do you do if you're a newspaper and you know you have a popular writer who's a, who has a po- you have a writer who has a popular blog and he's driving people to your newspaper enter your newspaper's website where you also make some money, sell some advertising. But what, what gives him that power to do that for you is his independence from you. Right. And that's, right, all, being, yeah. that's all being debated in, in, in shaken doubt, shooken doubt. Uh, that's all being worked out right now. Yeah. And I just think, it, you know, listen, I think the best job in the whole world is to be a music teacher in college because people give you money to make music and you don't have to worry about staying up till 3 o'clock for a gig. But the second best job in the whole world is being a mass communication teacher today because, you know, you you don't have to struggle to fill 50 minutes. Because the kids are so hip, there's so much going on. And then you take the Josh uh, Wolf example I just gave you. There are 10 issues yeah. that I would have given a week apiece to 
in a regular mass comm class, but there are 10 issues embedded just in what that kid is doing and has done and what his predicament is. Do you think classrooms in general are going to move into that uh, a give-and-take model like that a little more? I mean, teachers are going to become and professors are going to become less of, you know, quote-unquote gatekeepers, and the classroom is going to become more of a dialogue? They have to because students expect it. When I, when I was a young professor uh, back in the 70s, I had to be entertaining because kids were watching TV. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Now professors have to be interactive because kids are interactive. Yeah, they'll, yeah they expect they that. They want to talk back. They want to challenge you. I, 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 it's sort of a, a silly example, but I was teaching a theories class last semester. And anyway, somehow we got onto the whole um, um, Al Gore discovered the Internet. And I had this arch-conservative student there said, but he said that. And I said, no, he didn't say that. And what basically ended up happening was is she went out and got her, her websites. She brought me her <laughs> evidence. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, her evidence was, you know, from Joe the Clown in Biloxi, Mississippi. <laughs> and mine was way better. So I was able to crush her. Yeah. Much to the light of my students, by the way. But the, the point is, is my kids will bring in uh, either either in hard copy or the links, they will say, well, what about this? Check this out. You didn't think of this. What do you think about what this guy has to say? Right. And it makes me, I mean, there are two ways to look at it. One, it makes me a better teacher because I kind of have to be up on things. On the other hand, if not that I would do this, but I can see it making someone a relatively lazy teacher because you really don't have to know your stuff because you can always go, well, you know what? Let's Google that. <laughs> right. Okay, Stanley. I, you know, Stanley, yeah. I want I, I want to kind of change the tenor. We are running out of time, but I want to really we want to get into something that's kind of meaty for us, and that is that we've been speaking with a lot of people that um, are in this new media realm, and uh, like uh, Jesse Thorne, for example, and yeah. he does a radio show, and he also does a podcast and a website, a few podcasts, and we talked to him about like what he what he is. He says, "I'm a radio person." He like gets in that space. I mean, you have more thoughts yeah, but he also at the same time he he told us that he makes all of his money from his podcast. And we also yeah. just last week we interviewed somebody that um, he, he puts movies on YouTube where they're seen by millions of people. Yet he feels this inclination and this pull to put his his little projects into film festivals where they're only seen by you know a handful of people. So we're sort of wondering as we as we move along with this show about new media you know why this is why are why, why the, they're making money and you're not no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no 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 but why are the claws of the old media just so deeply ingrained in these people and they're well, doing this really I, cutting edge stuff no then let's quote Marshall McLuhan I love it we, we look at the future in the rearview mirror so oh I have I have a, 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 a video site or I have a weblog, or I have a podcast. How do I know, what should my format be? Oh, I'll look at what used to be. Right. Oh, how will I decide if I'm a success? Oh, I'll look at what used to be. How will I decide how much money, whether I'm making enough money? So what McLuhan said, you know, what, was, what did we do when TV came along? 
instead of making an absolutely, totally new, wonderful, gigantic new medium, we basically had radio with pitches. We brought <laughs> the same stars over, the same network, the same economic structure. You know, who, you know, I mean, now we can't even imagine the TV could have been anything else because we have, we have what we have. Huh. Internet. What are we going to do with the Internet? We do. It's more TV, more radio, more movies. More newspapers. You know, yeah. More newspapers. Not, again, you got to look, AJ, a- he has like three initials, but lick litter. Uh, uh, man Computer Symbiosis was the name of his famous article in which he took um, uh, McLuhan's ideas about the global village and said, look at it, if we link computers together, we can have this gigantic, he talked nationally, national conversation. But wow. So the Internet comes along, and, and, I, and I'll give you this example, and I really will get to, I have a, a more succinct, a, a more direct answer for you, okay. but... McLuhan does talk about this. Whenever a new technology comes, we look at the old models for how it should work. And that's what's happening with those, those folks that, that you just mentioned. Yeah. But when I, I, have, I mentioned that I had this Introduction to Mass Comm textbook, and it's in its sixth edition now. And in the first two editions, in the Internet chapter, I had a long section on the commercialization of the Internet and about how there was a fight about how commercial the Internet should be and how people were tuning out of the Internet because they hated the, the, the pop-ups and the Schlotskys and all the stuff that was going across their screen. The last four editions, that's not even an issue anymore. I mean, it's here. Right. No one even talks about it anymore. It is what it is. Yeah. Right, and people see ads on their sites and go, oh, that's how they're getting paid for it, and they understand. Right, instead of being pissed off and going, wait a minute, yeah. My money paid for this. <laughs> My money paid for the research that did this. Yeah. And that, listen, you got to talk to somebody else about net neutrality, but the whole, the whole idea of, of uh, the, the uh, ISPs controlling flow, controlling speed, having tiers uh, of, of speed, you know, uh, people talk about a pitchfork moment. Mm-hmm. The fact that people aren't yeah. out in the streets ripped off, pissed off about this because we paid for that internet. But anyway, to 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 really answer your question, look at a site like uh, Atomic Atom Films. Oh, absolutely, right. absolutely wonderful site. But what's their big come on? You know, not you know, you, millions of people will watch your stuff, but. We'll get you a development deal. You know, yeah. No, really. You know, yeah. We'll get you on television. Right. right. And, and instead of saying, you know what, let's figure out a way to make this work for us. And if you read about the record industry, everyone worries about newspapers getting killed by the Internet. The record industry really got killed by no, the Internet. Yeah. And the irony there, why I don't feel bad for them, is when the guys, the German guys who invented MP3, invented it, they didn't put it out there. They went to the record companies mm-hmm. first and said, listen, here's a new way. And the record <laughs> companies, looking in the rearview mirror, said no. So what did they do? They put it out there for free, 
MP3 becomes the standard, and the record companies are struggling now. Right. So, but ends up, it, 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 there's a lot of writing now in that industry. What the record, the record companies really need to understand that they will never make as much money as they used to. Yeah. They simply can no longer think about what was. So, you know, now you have deals like, uh, oh, who has? Uh, Madonna has a, what's called a 360 deal with some concert promoter. So, the, the, oh, yeah, yeah. the record company, the concert promoter, the t-shirt sales, the videos, the movie roles, all, basically, she is the company herself. You know, the Wired, maybe a year ago, had a fabulous two articles, both by David Byrne, about different ways to make money in the record industry. And only one of the ten ways was the traditional record company. Right. And other musicians, or, or I shouldn't say other musicians, millions of musicians are figuring out, you know what, I can make, and let's just make up a number. I know you guys in California... So I can't say forty-five thousand bucks. I got to say eighty-five thousand because it costs so much to live there. But a self-distributing, a self-recording, self-promoting, self-distributing musician on the internet, let's say, can make eighty thousand bucks a year. Right. Right. Why not? Why not? Because in the old model, if you weren't Michael Jackson or you weren't the Beatles or you weren't Oingo Boingo or a flock of seagulls. You didn't make squat. So now yeah. more musicians, you know, so now they don't have to set their sights at becoming uh, mega millionaires. They can make nice livings and have the freedom to interact with their uh, fans and make the music they want to make. Right, there's, right. A guy, there's a guy in New York City, and I really wish I could remember his name, a musician, going to nice living, um, Oh, God, they did a big article on him in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, so people can Google that. And anyway, this guy makes a nice living, and this is how he does concerts. Instead of renting a hall in Cleveland and you know, having to buy ads and radio time saying that, you know, Joe Smith is coming to Cleveland on August 8th, you know, come pay 25 bucks to hear him, his fans in, in let's say, Cleveland will get together on the Internet, like Facebook or whatever, and they'll say, hey, how many of you uh, would pitch in 20 bucks a piece for a concert for Joe Smith? What's a good date? And as soon as he gets a critical enough mass or fans that it makes it worth his while to go from New York to Cleveland, he shows up and gives a concert. That's so amazing. the fans assemble first, right. yeah. and then he goes out. So now he doesn't have to do eight thousand people at twenty five bucks a piece, thirty five fifty bucks a piece. That's how long it's been since I've been to a concert, because he doesn't have to pay for radio time. He doesn't have to pay for newspaper ads. Right. The fans pay him to come. Yeah. They're happy because they only have to pay twenty bucks. It's on a night that was good for them, and and the musician gets a a, a guaranteed paycheck. That makes it worth his while to go there. So, Stanley, 
yeah, Stanley, earlier you mentioned, sorry, but you mentioned earlier that um, you saw some of this stuff as kind of pessimistic, but then you also mentioned this kind of stuff, which is what brings my optimism to to what the kind of world we're starting to live in, where a musician doesn't have to be in bed with a large corporation to make a living off of the music, even though music is freely distributable. Like, so it's, it, I think that's a pretty optimistic story right there. No, I, listen, I think, and, and I, I, I don't know that I was generally pessimistic about where we were going. I think it was whatever the particular issue was yeah, yeah. we were talking about, I might have been a bit yeah. pessimistic. I believe TV is better than it ever was, and I'm not talking about crap like American Idol and Survivor. I'm talking about stuff like My Name is Earl, uh, all the stuff on Cinemax and HBO, um, even the stuff on the networks like uh, NCI and those stupid things, or CSI, whatever the hell it is. I mean, I think they're, they're looking at issues that they would not have looked at some time ago because the, what the Internet has done is it's gotten people questioning more, asking bigger questions. The music now is more democratic. I think if you count blogs, magazines slash newspapers, which is really what those are, are more democratic. I think the, the availability of music now is much better. Again, when I was in the music buying crowd, you know, we would wait for the next release of our favorite band and go buy it. You know, my son, he sits up there and he just, he cruises the internet and he's got like 3,000 songs and half of them of people I listen to that I didn't tell him to, to buy that music or download that music. He was just searching and he hit upon it. He liked it. You know, he has a remarkable playlist and yeah. all the artists made, made 99 cents. Of, well, they didn't make the whole 99. They probably made 19 cents, but still more than they would have made if I, if I had bought that record some time ago. No, yeah. ultimately I'm optimistic in right. general. Can we talk about our show a little bit? We're um, we're trying to do this podcast here, and we're trying to. It ends up. Well, let's just say we're struggling with it, n- not using the radio model. You know, do we want music at the beginning? Are we going to have what kind of salutation? Are we going to have what kind of sign off? Are we going to have? And it's really frustrating to to forge ahead, and it just sounds so different. And you just say, "Oh, this doesn't sound good." Well, what are we comparing it to? We're comparing it to a radio show, and we're comparing it to you know what we know. So, what what do you have to say about um, people that are forging ahead and 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 try you know trying different things in this new media? I mean, well, you know, if you well, first of all, let me ask you a question. Yes. When I lived there ten years ago, mm-hmm. there was a radio show called Geek Speak. Was that you guys? Yeah, that's my that's show. Wild, yeah, yeah. I, I still do it. Oh yeah, no, because I know the show. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, <clears throat> no, if you if you if you go on um, uh, like NPR, mm-hmm. they'll say you can you can listen to our podcast. But yeah, it's their radio. I mean, it, it sounds like radio. Yeah, but there are others like uh, you know. Uh, uh, oh, the City Club. Isn't that what it's called in San Francisco that has the speakers mm. every week? Oh, no. The, um, oh, my God. What's that called? 
<laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. There are debating societies and speaking societies yeah. that also do, who do put out podcasts. And right. I would listen to what they're doing to see if they do the theme music leading in and, and all that other stuff. I don't know because I don't listen to those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I would say forge your head. I mean, yeah. if you guys, if, if, you know, if, if, if you're able to go to your daughter's birthday party last week and give her a nice gift, and if you can pay your bills and you're proud of what you're doing, just keep doing it, and eventually the audience will find you. No, and then, and then you will define what a podcast is oh, as I, opposed I, to NPR. I like your attitude. We're actually looking like really far back in the in the in the mirror and um, sort of bringing back the whole Dick Cavett idea of this, you know, these long form interviews. Right. And I, you know, Terry Gross is fine, and all those NPR shows are fine. But man, sometimes you you want to hear a little longer than three minutes or five minutes from yeah. somebody. Yeah. No, I have a very good friend um, who is just an absolutely brilliant engineer. He left his Silicon Valley company, and he's now trying to make it on his own. Uh, But anyway, what he does is he searches podcasts, looks at what the topics are, decides if they're, once he's interested, and he downloads them to his iPod, and and that's what he listens to in his car. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't care that they're four minutes. He'll do three hours, yeah. you know, if he knows he has yeah. a three-hour drive. Hmm. And, and and that's how people will eventually start to listen. Yeah. You know, cars now come MP3 and iPod, uh, uh, what's the word, compatible. So people will start listening to, to um, the kind yeah. of things you guys are doing. And I actually like the way you expressed it going way back in the rearview mirror. You know, but you got to remember... Let me tell you why it may work. Back then, people actually tuned into Dick Cavett because they really were curious. And Dick Cavett didn't have to do, um, he didn't have to get 17 million right. viewers. Yeah. You know, he could get away with a couple million because, of you know, well, first he was in PBS and then ABC. They gave him a slot where he didn't have to do that much. You know, what's your overhead? I'm not going to bill you for this conversation. So your overhead on this is nothing. Yeah. I have to say one other thing before we wrap up is that um, just, you know, mass communication, what we're talking about, um, the very first email I ever got was from you. So for what it's worth. (laughs) Yeah. Really? That's pretty cool. What did it say? Uh, Knowing you, it was probably one sentence long. So. Although after this interview, no one's ever going to believe that I could do anything in one sentence. Yeah, no. <laughs> hey, Stanley, I want to say that I'd really love to have you on again to talk more about these things. I feel like there's so many things we didn't touch on that I'd, I'd love your views yeah. on. So I hope that uh, that you had a good enough experience where you'll come back with us at some point. Well, you couldn't tell. I love to talk about this stuff. So my suggestion is, is you know, when you go a while and, and get, get as many done as you can, and you got a whole bunch of new questions at me, and we'll find another time to chat. Great, thank Great. you. Thanks a lot, Stan. It was good talking to you again. All right. All right, guys. Enjoy yourself. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Stanley Barron is a professor in communications at Bryant University. He has a BA in radio film from Massachusetts. He has an MA in journalism from Pennsylvania State University and a PhD in communications research from University of Massachusetts. Is that radio standard enough for you, Em? Um, the little <laughs> introduction thing? Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> it's a good outro, though. <laughs>
Well, my, name's, my name's Lyle Troxel. And my name's Emerson Murray. This is Media Sound Off, all one word, mediasoundoff.com, if you want to learn more or hear some of our other shows. Thank you very much.